0: Don't sweat the small stuff, appreciate the moments. Make your choices wisely, and yes, play hard. Play hard, you can still go big, play hard. You don't have to you know, sit in a rocking chair and do nothing. You can launch projects and all that kind of stuff, but do it inside this knowledge that uh, life is temporary. You're given your moments on this stage, and your job is to show up as a whole human being and do with it what brings meaning and purpose to to your life and those of,
1: of others that you love. That was Stephen Hayes, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and in each episode I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh, in time My guest today is Dr. Stephen C. Hayes. My guess is that uh, he doesn't really need an introduction if you're here on this podcast, uh, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, Stephen Hayes is a Nevada Foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada and author of 47 books and nearly 670 scientific articles. His career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering. He is the developer of relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy. He's also the co-developer of process-based therapy, a new approach to evidence-based therapies more generally, which we discuss in this episode. We explore a lot of territory in this episode. Uh, Some of that includes death and dying young, aging and how Stephen views his own process of aging, challenging meaninglessness to make space for conscious meaning-making, We go deep on all things process-based therapy. We explore self-compassion and how it actually isn't helpful for some people, making psychological flexibility more inclusive from a process-based approach. Uh, We explore some of the problems with the current diagnostic and syndrome-based treatment methods. Uh, We explore how racism and classism has been built into the traditional statistical methods we use. And we explore how the concept of being normal actually played a role in some atrocities in Nazi Germany. I feel so fortunate to have Stephen Hayes back on the podcast for a second time. He was actually episode number one, and I couldn't believe I got to speak with him then, and I feel the same way now. We went really deep on this episode, and uh, I just... Yeah, I feel really lucky to be able to speak with somebody that I admire so much and has been such an important part of my development as a therapist. So thank you, Stephen Hayes, for doing this. And I really hope you enjoy the episode. If you want to support the podcast, you could follow me on Instagram at Mentally Flexible. You could leave a review on Apple or iTunes, or you could just keep listening, share with a friend and Um, Shoot me a chat or an email and we can connect. All right, well, without any further delay, let's get into the conversation with Dr. Stephen C.
2: Hayes.
1: Again, for doing this and You know, first thing I wanted to say was, I appreciate what you did for my friend uh, who recently passed away. And that really meant a lot to him. And um, it meant a lot to me to hear you talk about that. And for context, you know, I have a friend who was young and recently passed away from cancer. And he was um, very integrated into the act world. And you created a very sweet video giving him some words of wisdom or whatever you can. Share in that moment, and it meant a lot to him. So I wanted to thank you for that.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear that. But I'm, yeah.
1: Sorry for your loss. How do you, how do you make sense of something like that? It's something that's really impacted me. If like someone so close to me, that's so young, and was seemingly so healthy, pass away like that. How do you conceptualize that, or make sense of it, or do you not really even try to do that?
0: Well, you know, I think we're uh, living inside a story that life has an arc and it has these features and you do this and then you get that. And it's a verbal story. It's it's not life as it's lived. It's what we put on the world, we structure it. And then stuff happens. And you realize, uh, mm, you're not in control of that story and the story could have lots of different features to it. You know, you could have a cancer diagnosis now and not know it and everything will change when you learn it. And people do die early. Just go out and look at the distribution of deaths, you know, from infant deaths on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, really, I mean, I, I think death is one of those ones that is so challenging to the verbal conception that we have. You know, when we show up in consciousness, it seems like we've been here forever. We don't even remember even our own, you know, one-year-old self. You know, it disappears in infantile amnesia, and they show up in the eye here now in of awareness, and it seems like we'll be here forever. Um, no, we won't. A lot in this plane who knows about other planes of existence. So I think breathing infinitude and meaninglessness and the end is really, really important to empowering people to learn how to get out of the story and show up here. I actually have a thing that I do in therapy on that occasionally, I don't do it very often, but And I haven't hardly even written about it because it sounds so harsh. But it's um,
3: uh, a a kind of a thing
0: of challenging meaning and facing meaninglessness. Because I think if you can, I don't think I even want to do it here because it's just so harsh, but... uh, (laughs) If you really push it, you know, like prove me, prove to me that something means something. And this is what the process I go through with clients. Mm -hmm. It looks like I'm the devil incarnate when I do it. Uh, You can't win the arguments. You absolutely can't win the argument. I mean, all you have to do is say, so what? You know, there's suffering, so what? Uh, You know, you just follow it out. And then somewhere in there you realize,
3: I'm caring about this
0: you know if there were no life on the planet would anybody really care about pollution or anything or the fact that the sun when it goes to a red dwarf will be so large the orbit of the earth will be inside the sun does anybody care without people to care and the answer is no so you're caring and when you see that and can own it and can inhale and eat meaninglessness, not to eliminate it, by eat it, I mean like get with it. You know, It's like if you eat food, it's with you, it's in you, right? Eat meaninglessness. Start there. Don't fight it off. And then in the next breath, you realize that your children matter. Love matters. Contributions matter. People matter. And Sue me if you don't like it, you know
3: that uh, so that turns life from a, um achievement test to a creative journey that
0: we're navigating moment by moment in the service of what we deeply care about
1: so is that sort of implying the that we infuse, we can make choices on where we infuse meaning.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, you know, that, that
1: act idea
0: of uh, hold it lightly and pursue it passionately with the values, the hold it lightly part, people kind of have a hard time with that sometimes. Cause it's like, what, wait a minute, if it really, really matters, why would you hold that lightly? Because it's not that it matters. It's that you're mattering about it. And so, and and that could change, the things you care about could change, etc. But but to own that you're doing it, that should be done humbly. You don't go out there and say, Oh, it matters. You know, that's like sort of taking your insides and pounding them down onto the world. And the world doesn't care.
3: I mean your cancer doesn't care.
0: You know. Inflation doesn't care. <laughs> Pollution doesn't care. I mean, the things, but you care. So you hold it lightly and pursue it passionately in the sense of this diffused, open, aware space that then allows you to play all out at the game of heading in a direction. Not a game because it's unimportant, but a game because you did that. I mean, you created the rules that said, I want to get there just like you would if you were playing tag as a little kid and you say, I want to touch that tree before you touch me. And then, you know, three-year-olds will give absolutely every ounce of effort that they can give to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Well, you could do that with a podcast. You could do that with raising a kid. You could do that with um, doing your science or learning how to alleviate suffering. You can play it all out. But you'll be kind of like this if you start with... It's important because then it's imposed and you're going like, oh, it's such a heavy burden. Oh my God, please don't make me. What are you talking about? Make me. World's not making you do anything. World doesn't give a damn. You do. So it's a it's a weird space, but that's and and not everybody would parse it this way, but I think death, really death, major things like this, tragedies, economic disasters, wars, push that reset button and give you a chance, actually, to do something really cool that will pay off
1: in the rest of your life if you can learn how to do it. Well, since, like you acknowledged, death can come at really any time of life. I could be sitting here with a cancer diagnosis or get into a car accident after this, but with the journey that tends to happen to most people as like getting getting to an older age as you move into that later stage of life now how does that reality sit with you does it something you think about is it something that has changed
0: well Well, you know they've done some research on that how often do old folks think about death and it's an insane number of times it's insane because you're like a tea bag in water i mean you're just steeped in it not even about yourself but all your friends start dying and you know, your cohort starts disappearing you're looking around it's like, <laughs> it's like you know something out of a bad marvel movie you know like you're <laughs> just turning suddenly uh you're out here alone and time shifts and that's one that people with serious health problems and so forth learn that's not an age thing It's a s it's how what you know about your What's going on in life impacts your story. But time goes from how much time will it take to do this to how much time do I have have left and what will I not be able to do if I do this. Mm -hmm. You know, it it goes from behind you moving forward to in front of you shrinking. Mm -hmm. And um, it has a profound difference on your uh, psychology. There's measures of it. Mm And there's names for whatever, what they call it, two different kind of names of sense of time. And uh, everybody goes through it if you live long enough, but it, uh, you will go through it quickly if you suddenly, you know, find out your terminal. I mean, how much time do I have left, you know, for this walk with my kid? Or You know, really start shortening. But the big projects and things like that, you know, where you're saying, Oh, well this'll take me five years to write this grant, get it funded, run it, write it up, well, maybe seven, and then you go like <laughs> you may not have seven. <laughs> you know, that's a different set. The effect of it is for most for if you handle it well. Well, I don't it sounds too judgmental. But I th- I think the wise effect of it is Don't sweat the small stuff, appreciate the moments, make your choices wisely. And yes, play hard, play hard. You can still go big, play hard. You don't have to, you know, sit in a rocking chair and do nothing. You can launch projects and all that kind of stuff, but do it inside this knowledge that uh, life is temporary. You're given your moments on this stage and your job is to show up as a whole human being and um, do with it what brings meaning and purpose to to your life and those of of others that you love. There's a feature in there also, which because uh, aging brings uh, challenges and, and kind of loss of function, so there's the flexibility of finding the multiple ways to move towards values that no longer include the things you used to do quite in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, you know, I still have the value that I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way or this way or this way. Uh, I tell a story of a client of ours early on in the act journey who, uh, uh, lost her uh, functioning of her legs and she was a dancer and she was like, what does life mean? And You know, she ultimately decided to support dance troops and she worked hard to raise money for them and she'd have her wheelchair to come in and look at the dancers and they they knew her name and she was, you know, part of a structure that kept the troop going and she was back there applauding and appreciating. But that took a shift from... You know, I want to bring beauty into the world through my movement. To I want to bring beauty in the world through movement and supporting it, in, in, in people who, and other people other than me, learning how, giving advice. So those things happen. Um, I think they call them. Uh, there's a name for it in the aging literature. Compensation is a, a technical term for this strategy. And it predicts, as you could expect, well-being. But it
1: applies, I think, regardless of the age. As opposed to holding on tightly to a specific manifestation of a value or specific behavior, learning how to like move with it and adapt. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's, uh,
0: there's some of these early act metaphors who don't use that. Much anymore. You like the swamp metaphor, you know, you're walking from here to there, you hit a big gigantic swamp, and it looks like you can't possibly move forward. Yeah, but you may be able to move sideways and then move forward. And so, you know, if you take something like a unnecessary divorce and an abusive relationship. Man, I was—I wanted children. I was so committed to intimate. Uh, yeah, this is the form that takes now. Now, the form it takes is letting go of this abusive relationship and the person who was abusing you and the emotional pain of that and the loss of the story that made sense of all that suffering that where you tried and tried and tried again to make it work. And, and then it seemed to... And, and then he lost it again and punched you in the face, and, and you say, "No, no, I'm not going to do more of that." That's a values-based journey, but boy, does the pathway look different. Mm. I I use the metaphor of Mount Rose Highway, which is the way you get from my house up to the Lake Tahoe, where I've got a little place up there. My wife and I. In fact, I'm going up there in a couple of hours because we're doing the workers are doing a little bit of work up there. Mount Rose Highway will have you go every single point on the compass to get around that mountain. It's a big, you know, Sierra Nevada mountain. Your car
1: will head in all possible directions. And that's a necessary part of getting from here to there. Not how you would want to plan it if you could choose. So that's what makes it a good metaphor, right? Yeah. Really what we're talking about,
0: you know, it's kind of inside the psychological flexibility model is how you can uh, find a place that's wiser, where this mindy idea that it's a linear line, and it's a straight ahead march, and you have to get there, and it's important, and all of that, you let go of that, and you show up to what life is actually giving you, which is the opportunity to create meaning inside a world that the physicist will tell us is either going to expand indefinitely and become dark or somehow there's dark matter out there enough to slow down the acceleration and then it comes back to an infinitely dense P and it explodes again in a big bang. Those are the two options. They used to think of it, and I like the infinitely dense one because it looked like you could just go woo, 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 like that. But now it looks like, no, nah, it just keeps expanding and dies. Uh, but so, uh, either way, does that sound meaningful to you? <laughs> <laughs> so, it gets harder and not easier to be human because if, if you were out in the savannah or something, you know, not very long ago, just a few, several hundred years ago. You had no idea of anything like that. Yeah. You know, now eight and nine-year-olds have that. And yeah, the suicide rates among 10 to 12-year-olds is up uh, something like 300% in the last five years. You know, how are you going to carry what we ask our children to carry with all the knowledge they get off those computers in their pockets? and the and constant exposure to pain and judgment and all that. But part of it is also just flat-out scientific knowledge. <laughs> how are you going to carry that? Such as the one I just mentioned.
1: How would you approach that, or maybe how have you as a parent?
0: Yeah, well, I approach it kind of the way I'm talking right now, and I tell this story in a liberated mind because... And I do it around, and they've given me permission to talk about this. They're all of an age. I have kids ranging from uh, just now 17 to uh, 52. Spread in such a way that I'll have kids in the home for 55 years when Stevie leaves her college in two years. Um, Yeah, which that's a Guinness Book of World Records. But all of my children have come to me with suicidal thoughts at various ages. And I think the youngest would be like seven and oldest like 12. And a liberated mind to talk about Charlie because his was a little scarier. You know, it really was like almost in my face, like, you know, prove to me that I should live, you know, why? And then he kind of goes into a rant that includes some of the very things we're talking about. Losses ahead. Ultimately, it's a big ice ball. <laughs> Not even that, you know. It's extra, finitude. It's finite. And all the variants that come around that. And he's asking me to almost a little edge. Prove to me. And I said uh, something like, Well, Charlie, let's start here. Life is empty and meaningless. And I look him in the eye, and he goes like, like, what the F are you talking about? But there's a, there's a little kind of, and I let it settle in. I so said, let's just go with that. And then I just want to add one little thing, which I know is also true, which is I love you, and I know you love me. That's also true. mm and there was kind of like a, you know, a little psychological chiropractic, little, you know, where we had a conversation that continued. But he got it, which is, look, whatever else mind chatter you've got about all these facts out there in the world, you also have the reality of meaning and purpose. It's right here. It's as real as air. You do care. The very fact you're distressed by the fact that it's all going to end tells you that, right? Hmm. But mishandled, it becomes a mindy reason to blow your brains out. People constantly do this and be behind notes about and how it doesn't mean anything. Well, no, you're distressed about the thought that it doesn't mean anything. It isn't just a thought, it's real. Yes, okay, but the, we're not inside the orbit of the sun yet. We're here now. And in billions of years, yes, the Andromeda galaxy will smash into the Milky Way. Yes, that's true. On and on, all those things, right? That you learn about in all these classes. And and you've got to do something more existentially wise in order to live inside the scientific world that we've created, I think. And not just in these big ultimate everything, but you just take something like climate anxiety. You know, we literally have people with anxiety disorders or suicidal ideation and behavior around
3: climate. Of course you do.
0: Well, what are you going to do about that? I mean, one of the things you you would want, just looking back at it, is you'd want the human population to then step up to the challenge of climate change. We absolutely have the capacity to do this. We are not inert. Every scientist says it. Yeah, we could lose the capacity. It is true. We could get this thing so self-amplifying that no matter what we do, we're screwed and half the world becomes unlivable and billions of people die. I mean, all that stuff is possible. But it's not here yet. And... um, I bet with human beings, I mean, my bet is on human beings, but only if we as behavioral scientists help the culture do some things that allow them to be fleet of foot enough, since it looks like the wisdom that's inside our religious traditions alone is not going to be enough. Because, uh, A, some of them turn dogmatic, B, you know, none of the above is the fastest growing religious group and it's already a quarter of the population and so it's a rise that's and in every developed world where that's happened, it doesn't reverse. Hmm. It doesn't, there's not a single example of a reason for reversing. And there's some like in you know, the Northern Europe and stuff where it's up into the 60, 70, 80 percent, no religious affiliation what are we gonna do in terms of meaning, issues of meaning and purpose? You know, not gonna do psychotherapy. We're gonna have to figure out a way to put what the science says that is extracted out of our wisdom traditions about how to step up to the challenge of being human in a way that allows you to prosper. And I think if we do that, like helping people Learn how to become clear about their values. Distinguish them from goals. Open up to the emotional pain that comes with that because you hurt where you care. Open up to the chatter that comes with that because we're problem-solving organisms and what does it mean if we're going to be inside the sun at some point, the orbit of the earth. All of those skills, those good old psychological flexibility skills, are needed. I think. And so modern minds for the modern world and whether you call it act or something else, I don't care. You know, I'm working really hard in whatever years I have to try to get the alliance among the behavioral health folks about processes of change that empower people and to stop putting, shoving people into top down normative categories and telling them what to do. Hmm. And, uh, why? Because that's my bet
1: as to how best to empower people to step up to these challenges. Well, that's a good segue into your, your newer work with Stefan Hoffman with the learning process-based therapy. Yeah. And could you speak a little bit more about this kind of new path you're on of trying to unite the different teams here and really try to reinvigorate a new way of thinking about clinical work, and mental health? It's so dramatically different. I'm teaching my last class on my career beginning next
0: week, on next Monday. Wow. And I'm teaching it on what I'm calling idiomic analysis, which I didn't even know was needed when we started working on a process-based therapy. It was only three years ago that I realized it was needed, with a shock, I mean, with a real shock, because it challenges almost everything in psychology, almost everything, for reasons that I can explain. And I'm walking people through the history of how we got it wrong and what we need to do, I think, to get it closer to right. The early steps of process-based therapy were all about, you know, let's not hold on to our protocols for syndromes. Let's instead look at how we can foster processes of change using kernels that are drawn from evidence-based methods and you can still have your models, you can still have an ACT model you can still be an ACT person it's a good way to integrate it but don't do it in a way that builds artificial boundaries between things that that you know are helpful to people don't ever be saying "Oh, I'm an ACT person, I don't do that when there's a that there that can be helpful to somebody which doesn't mean empty eclecticism, no it means doing what people need to get what they need and use and demanding of our models that they help you do that and if they don't set them aside and that's the process-based therapy journey everybody gets to play but then we're in this journey with Stefan and I almost 10 years I think we're seven years in and I hit this holy beans moment and I realized that The statistics that are required to do that can't be built on the bell curve, standard deviation, variation between people tools that we have statistically. 95% of our statistical tools that we apply to process mediational analysis, all that stuff, correlations, etc. are wrong provably mathematically wrong and uh, so i can do a deep dive into that but it would it depends on where you want to take the conversation because i'll just give you a hint of where it goes and where it goes is realizing that uh, racism and classism is built into statistics deliberately because the early major statisticians were eugenicists, mm. and they the early psychological wave was individual differences, psychometrics, individual differences, etc, which is a direct extension of eugenic thinking, direct, purposive. I mean, you can read the quotes mm. in psychology and behavioral sciences you know, stuck their fingers in their ears after the Nazis and so forth and so said, no, 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 but you get into the history and it's not no no no, it's yes, yes, yes. And we're doing it right now in our routine. Uh you do a DSM diagnosis, you're doing the eugenesis dirty work. Given an IQ test, eugenesis dirty work. Telling people where they should be placed and achievement tests in schools, same thing. You don't know it. You don't know that's why those tools are there. You don't know that you're doing that. But when you see the alternative, and and when you realize if we're going to go in this process direction, we have to shift from sorting people into categories into empowering people with knowledge about what is helpful for them within their life, and that requires a radical re- redoing of behavioral science, its methods, its measures, its designs, its concepts. So we've been pulling on a little uh, strand of sweater, and the sweater's unraveling really fast. But in exciting ways, you know, like three weeks ago, we developed an entirely new statistical method, never been seen before on the planet. It's working awesome. I was just in the long... Email conversation this morning about it. Uh, things like that. You know, you feel like when you, you've you been looking at the world in this hor- in this horizontal way, about this vertical way, and and suddenly, you know, the world makes you look at it in this ninety degree tilt way, and in this you're disoriented, and then you start seeing stuff, and you go, "Wow, this is cool," and this and this and this and this and this and, this, and, this. and that's what's happening is. It's not yet the whole big community that's fully onto it because it's just the folks who kind of sense process-based therapy is cool. But no, if you really care about process-based therapy, be ready for the ride because this is a major shift, not just in clinical psychology, but in all of the behavioral and life sciences uh, it, and other people have been onto it. It's not. It's it's not that we're creating it. It's there. You start seeing it of complex networks, some of the machine learning, big data stuff. You see it in precision medicine. You see it in personalized medicine. You see, you see it out there, but not yet fully in a way that I think people understand how big a change that the culture is about to go through. If what I'm saying is right, I think the next 40 or 50 years is going to be a massive cultural change. And I hope to see the first 10 or 15 of it.
1: Uh, I know I won't see all 50.
2: Mm.
1: Is there an old guard that makes it that, that there's a lot of resistance to making this kind of shift?
0: Well, in process-based therapy, the the early parts of just realizing we have to go from protocols for syndromes to, um, uh, kernels and processes that are power the resistance there are you know people still hoping that somehow diagnosis classic diagnosis is going to work they of course have lots and lots of investments in the particular syndrome they chased mm-hmm. you know we organized all our training that way you know i do anxiety disorders i do major depression or i only do whatever it is You know, and you're coming in and saying, actually, you know, these categories don't fit human beings very well at all, and they never will, and they can't. But there's an alternative. So people know they need an alternative because they see the things that are wrong. What do they see? They see massive uh, so-called comorbidity. Comorbidity is not comorbidity. It's just a bad diagnostic system. That's all it is, there's nothing special about it you know, it's just when you get junk, it doesn't fit <laughs> you know, it's a, but so there's that, and every clinician sees that every practitioner sees that you
1: know. the fact that everybody could have a six on a list of diagnoses and it can keep growing the more you get to know somebody and
0: yeah yeah and and you know what I'm going to do? he also has a substance abuse problem or. You know, holy beans. I don't know how to deal with sleep disorders, or you know. I mean, you just start looking around and you start asking the questions. You know, I'm not a sex therapist. I'm the you know, you know. Just ask some deep questions about a broad enough range, and almost every single person who walks in the door is going to have things that you don't know how to deal with and don't fit your categories. And of course, the, the normal human, but kind of lazy thing is, well, I just don't have the expertise here, so I'll just do that. In other words, I'm going to shove a human being into a box that I created. Well, how about busting down the box? You know, who said that a round human being has to fit into that rectangular box? I mean, so, but of course, that's challenging. The other thing practitioners see, which I show some graphics on this and it's just jaw-dropping. When you look at those smooth curves in your randomized trials about how things progress, and you know uh, the groups that go up and down and all that kind of stuff, and then you get in there and you're working with people, and it's a freaking roller coaster ride. You know, it's bad weeks, good weeks, same old, same old weeks. Just on the outcomes, you go to processes, same thing. You know, you just when you think somebody's starting to open up, you know, diffuse a little bit, they come in, yeah, but but what about this? And they're all wrapped around a new thought.
2: Yep.
0: Well, measure people at processes and outcomes longitudinally in a high-density way and then graph it. When you do that with a big randomized trial, for example, here you have smooth curves, and that's what's being given to clinicians. This is what, how the world works. And then you have this big bowl of spaghetti, That is the individual, where you literally can't even track how many different patterns there are. And that's what the clinician is seeing. Mm. And they're all kind of feeling as though maybe they're doing something wrong. No, you're being lied to. Functionally. Not deliberately. It's not intentional, bad stuff. What do you need to know? Well, you need to know what would emerge if you went within person across time. Can I give you a, tell you a story about something that's really current that yeah. nobody knows yet? That it's okay. So we're we're chasing down the self compassion concept, which has got a lot of traction, especially in positive psychology, et cetera. It's in clinical, but not fully thundering in. And there's all quarrels. Is it two factors? Is it one? Is it What about the subscales of the self-compassion skip? (laughs) But it's helpful. It overlaps hugely with psychological flexibility, by the way. (laughs) You know, even in the original validating study, it correlates like 0.7 something or other with psychological... Okay, but before we get into that, which will sound just like home turf, Um, how about the fact that self-compassion is important because it predicts compassion towards others? Almost everybody who's awake and in the third wavy wing, for sure, of uh, clinical work, knows that. And is pretty confident in that. Self-compassion is a good thing, not only for you, but for your partner and the world, because when you learn to be more kind to yourself, you learn to be kinder to others. Okay, so then you start doing high-density longitudinal measures, and ideographic analyses that are then clustered into nomothetic subgroups. Three out of five people show you the relationship that I just said. One out of five people don't show any relationship between self compassion and compassion towards others. And then there's one out of five that very reliably over time, the kinder they are themselves, the meaner they are to others. Mm. And you can begin once you identify it. But you only identified it with high-density longitudinal measures. It would just be error terms otherwise. It's not in the group correlations. It's not in the randomized trials. You cannot find it there. Now, you might be able to find this relationship there if you knew what tests to do. But then the next statement I'm about to make you can't find, which is you dig into that group. And it's multiple interactions with other processes, each of which makes sense, but is ideographic, such that self-compassion turns into a selfish form. Mm. How could that be? Well, come on, active people. Would you have some ideas? Oh, mm, how about values? How about if I'm doing self-compassion in a way that's self-serving? self, self um, serving? Mm. You know, I need my downtime. Self care is important. So you take care of the effing kids.
1: I've got to go have a bubble bath. Watch the kids while I go meditate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Selfish mindfulness. That didn't exist on the planet till we got involved. Why? Because it's in the good teachings. The teachers know how to do. You know, they've got right action. They've got you know, they've got values in action in there. They know how. But when you had to put in the healthcare system, you can't tell people what their values are. So John Cabot's in, for example. Sh- 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 there goes right action, and you hope that it's going to work. And for three out of five people, it does. And for one out of 5 you we're not so sure. But then I'm sorry to tell you, there's a group that's actually actively harmful actively harmful now you're a clinician you're looking at something this person's suffering their relationships aren't doing so well i should do self-compassion work wait a minute don't do that until you understand all these other processes and how they fit together for that person yes could just do it in another analysis on self-compassion and other compassion in terms of actual impact on relationships over time and it's there again there's a subgroup for whom self-compassion harms their relationships to others well of course if it's you're not being kind to others it's going to have that but it's another face of it and clinically you know you might have gone to self-compassion because you see also the person's got relationship problems let's say you know it. You can't think of it as one-size-fits-all anymore. It's just the models, if they're good, have to be fleet of foot enough to be able to fit these processes into an ideographic examination. How would you do that? Well, we're coming up with apps to do it. The study we just put out, unfortunately, uh, requires at least 60 data points before it can model the individual. We have this new statistical method we just came up with looks like it works well at thirty
2: hmm.
0: maybe even twenty, hmm. which is pretty cool. You lose some information and it's slightly different it's a different It's a machine learning uh evolutionary algorithm applied to the individual but what I'm saying is and you know I'm working hard I'm president of a charitable organization that is actively gushing money to create an app I don't want to say how much money I hope we don't go bankrupt <laughs> to, uh, that will allow practitioners to give to their clients a thing where they say hey when it pings you know just give us the swipes that will take about 8 minutes try to do it in the next half an hour or so do it twice a day for a month and it will give you the clinician here's this person's network when they do this they do this and when they do this they do this and you can feed it any outcomes that you want. And we're not going to feed it syndromal outcomes. So we do things like distress over sadness, distress over anxiety, things like that. Not just anxiety itself, because you know, we don't want to get into that thing where anxiety is bad. No, it isn't. Sometimes you want to be anxious. But stress over anxiety, mm, probably not a good thing. Um, and so the tools are coming where you'll be able to say, okay... This person, who we used to call major depression, here's what's actually going on with this person. And actually, in the article we just published, this is an actual pattern. This person, when they start getting distressed over sadness, they withdraw from people. When they withdraw from people, they feel as though they have no meaningful challenges in their life. Hmm. Nothing's personally important. When that happens... They space out, and they're no longer even in contact with what's going on and inside their body and in their environment. And when that happens, they start feeling really sad, and they get stressed over sadness. Well, that's a self-amplifying loop. Yes. You can call it depression,
1: but if you do, it's that person's personal Yes. depression right that's going to look different than the data you're going to get from somebody else that you could put in the same box absolutely yeah and the clinical implications are massively different if you were listening and
0: you're a clinician to what i just said you'd click through of oh maybe when you're feeling alone or distressed about sadness you need to reach out to people i need to do some sort of communication social kind of things around that oh you know when you've feels as though nothing's important, maybe you need to be able to connect with your values there. And as you sort of withdraw, say, wait, well, really, what am I up to? Or hey, when you start spacing out, maybe you need to do this thing like MBCT and you know just... kernels for that person. Another person with the same exact distress, we actually showed some where so-called positive processes work negatively. Hmm. so like here's one we showed a pattern coming out of this high density longitudinal thing where a person is distressed over something I think it was actually anxiety not sadness but I wish it was sadness gotta keep the theme but who, when that happens they start focusing on what's important and doing what works there were some other elements in there yeah but the more they did that the worse it was and then you looked at it more carefully and And it also had a negative relationship to finding opportunities to express your emotions mm. and it had a negative relationship, oddly, doing what's important and sticking to it had a negative relationship to uh, being clear about your personal values, so you can see what the person is doing they're doing this workaholic thing, yes. Would you say, you know, focus on what's important and persist is a good thing? Of course I'd say that. But not in the service of I'm not going into those emotional territories and I'm not really showing up to what's personally important. No, that's... So be prepared to have your ox gored world because the even the ones I care about, like emotional openness, not always. Diffusion, not always. Not always, not for everyone. It can be put into a network where it actually functions. It's a form-function thing, you know. It's the wisdom of the behavioral pragmatic tradition. But now we've got to put it not just into a conceptual idea or the art of functional analysis. Now we've got to put it into measures and analytic tools that give us quantitative mapping of the inner complex interrelationships between processes and outcomes, client by client. And it isn't completely client by client because these tools will then, the way we're doing them, will go out and look and say, is this person similar to others? Yes. And then when you do that, it'll say, well, knowing that, do I see some things that I would otherwise miss about this person and this other person that they look similar to? And if so, then we want to model it for the individual. So there is a role for the group, but with the group, instead of the group being sacrosanct and the person being the error term, which was necessary for Galton's eugenic dreams, bell curves and standard deviations into healthy individuals, we flip it, and the individual is sacrosanct. By individual, I mean the couple, the family, whatever the unit is you're targeting. And... The group is a source of error, but can be used if it helps you with yeah. the sacrosanct level. What does that what do you mean, sacrosanct? I mean this every person matters, every voice needs to be heard. And if you're not measuring and modeling the person, if you're not understanding the person or the couple or the family, if you're turning them into an error term, you are doing something that's dehumanizing them. And it goes all the way back to the original sin of psychology, which is throwing in with the
1: mm-hmm. Helps me feel a little more validated in how I've run an act consultation group. And whenever clinicians show up and ask questions, <laughs> my response most of the time is it depends. And it takes a lot more time to really get inside of, what an answer to a question is.
0: Yeah, we're just used to these uh, formal answers, and we need functional answers. But function needs context. And so the cool thing about processes of change and all the work to be done with mediation and all the rest is that we can distill down a problem space that in principle has unlimited number of variables to a smaller set of variables that do the heavy, heavy lifting. And we just published a systematic review of all the mediational studies ever done in the history of the planet. And it turns out that across all forms of psychological intervention with a mental health outcome, uh, psychological flexibility and mindfulness accounts for half of everything we know. And then when you add in... And are friendly about adding in, it goes up to 80-90%. Now, what you have to do to add in is you add in things like self-compassion, you add in behavioral activation, you add in decentering, you add in um anxiety sensitivity. It's an old concept, but it's very, very close to emotional openness and so forth. You even start adding in things like mm, self-efficacy. You know, believing that I can actually do something with my behavior. To move towards my values? How is that not linked to psychological flexibility? It's called self-efficacy. Okay, it's a different tradition. How about uh, reappraisal? That's really different. Well, it would be if reappraisal worked by challenge and change your thoughts. But that's not how it works. Reappraisal works when you actually do the analyses by... Cognitive flexibility, being able to think of good options and moving your behavior in accord with the options that work best for you. There's minimal evidence that detect, challenge, dispute, and change is helpful in CBT. What's helpful is challenge, getting people to notice their thinking patterns, actually record them, look at them. I mean, the thought record starts having a big impact even before you do any classic CT work. Why? Well, it's a diffusion exercise. I'm now seeing that thought. A little bit of separation between the person observing and the thought. That gives me a little more flexibility to be able to behave differently. And it's right in the protocol. Uh, Let's just test. You know, I can't do anything. Let's just see. Like what? What can't you do? I can't even make breakfast for my family. Well, this is in session two. This is before in the classic protocols. The behavioral tests are in session two of classic CT protocols. Let's see. Uh, for this next week, what I'd like you to do is really try hard to, well, like what would be the smallest breakfast you can make? I can boil an egg. Okay, I want you to see if you can boil an egg and also keep your thought records going. And that's, yeah, people start noticing that, you know, must, shoulds, have to, always. It's bullshit. There's variation. Sometimes you actually do do it.
3: Well, how is that not psychological flexibility?
0: And it is. So if you get friendly and if you turn psychological flexibility more like what we're doing now with the E.M. inside process-based therapy, and you just say, what is healthy variation? How would it be selected and retained? How would you fit it to context in all these dimensions and in the social level and the biological level? Well, if that's what biopsychosocial flexibility is, if we're going to call it psychological flexibility, it's fine. It now eats everything we know. Yes. I mean, we literally couldn't find anything other than some tiny little things of, you know, like some poor person. Found, I mean, there's like two studies showing personality can be a mediator. I mean, I don't know where to put that. But it's such a tiny proportion of the, so I've gotten more of a rant than I probably said, but here's what I'm saying to folks. It sounds complicated to go functional and keep saying it depends, but it's less complicated by far than the DSM and all of its freaking sub syndromes and. Not otherwise specified being the most common diagnosis and comorbidity and lying to people and shoving them to cubby holes and seeing sixty percent of the people use medications only because they have a thing, which they don't have. Yes, you know, and you got people who literally would say, gee, I thought I was just getting sad because I withdraw from people and and nothing seems important and and, and then I space out. Oh, no, it's not that. I have a major depression disorder. Recurrent. <laughs> Recurrent, yeah. Where's the pill bottle that will produce permanent changes in my nervous system so that I will never handle serotonin properly again in my life? Where is it? Please give it to me. Like, gee, God dang it. No, stop lying to people. Making them crawl inside your monkey suits, your clown suits, your cubby holes, whatever the metaphor is, so it's simpler, you know I think we can get our process measures down to i don't know ten eleven twelve important ones, psychological flexibility model, the EAM, et cetera. You can do it in your different traditions, you know you can do mentalization if you want to, yeah, I'm cool with that. Or whatever. Uh, Belonging, you know, self-determination theory. I'm cool with that. Whatever you want to do. But process focused and focus on the individual. You do it already when you listen to these stories and you start putting them together over the weeks. How about our concepts and our measures and our analyses now line up with that instead of... uh, You know, who gets to have children warmed over in 100,000 different ways. You know, I mean, Galton, at the same time that he's writing about standard deviation, is is writing about how, uh, you know, the Chinese should take over Africa so that it could progress. I mean, it's just racist, classist stuff that is so structured, our conceptual system. I'm on a rant. Did you know that the word normal wasn't ever used in the English language until the Civil War? Mm-hmm. You can't have a kitchen table conversation without saying normal, usually, typical, on average. You cannot. I challenge you, just listen at the next kitchen table conversation among your family. It's become so real. It's so real. It's, it's how we think about everything. Yeah. You know, you got second graders knowing their percentile scores and how they compare to other children in the freaking classroom. As if that's their future and it's a lie. It cannot. Mathematically, it's impossible. Apply with precision to prediction to people over time. The physicists proved this 100 years ago and we just woke up to it 15 years ago called the ergodic Theorem. But here we are living inside Galton's eugenic dreams so thoroughly that we're oh so happy our kids are in gifted and talented class and we're oh so distressed, you know that we got a major depression diagnosis without realizing we've been had. Mm. And there is an alternative where every voice matters, and no one
1: is an term. That's powerful, seriously. Thank you for sharing all that, and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's going to be disorienting. The very, very first thing I'm doing
0: in my class, my last class, can I tell you what the first lecture will be? Please. I'm going to show them film of the Action T4 uh, uh, program in Germany. Do you know what Action T4 is? I don't think so. Most people don't know this, 1933 Hitler comes into power immediately, immediately he starts demanding testing as to how normal or abnormal children are, adults are, with strict laws that if you're a physician or something and you don't do the testing, you're liable for charges a quarter of the german population is tested with iq tests and stuff like that it's just huge effort <sighs> mass sterilization follows the next year right about right in there might be wrong on the timing mass sterilization hundreds of thousands of people drawn from laws from where oh well that would be the united states of america The German law that permitted it, word for word
3: drawn from a law in Virginia, passed in the 20s, eugenic laws. Do you know they didn't stop
0: sterilizing in the United States of America for these kinds of things until the late 1980s? Whoa. California sterilized 200,000
3: people. And its last one was in 1984, for having intellectual disabilities. Involuntary sterilization.
0: That's the beginning. What comes next? Here's what comes next. Hidden from the German people, because Hitler knew they wouldn't like it. It's called T4 because it's uh, uh, the street address of the office where he gave the secret memo. Now that they're tested and now that we know and we're sterilizing some, we start taking the worst ones. Worst by how? They're depressed. They're anxious. They're schizophrenic. They're alcoholic. Um, They have epilepsy. They have a seizure disorder. What will we do? We'll bring them into treatment centers. Who? Let's start with the children. What will happen in the treatment centers? It's all secret. German people know nothing about it. The nurses will get their list as to who will die that day. And the mental hospitals are actually killing factories. It's called Action T4. People don't know about it. It starts with psychology. It starts with abnormality. Yeah, physical things like epilepsy. But especially, you know, things like schizophrenia, depression, etc. And especially if they can get to children, intellectual disability especially, and then it expands to adults. So your mother gets depressed, goes to the mental hospital, and then the thing comes, oh, we're so sorry. She developed a, an infection in her foot and she died. But here's her grave. You can go look at it. There's a marker as you go. She's not buried there. She's not in that grave. That was put up as a false front to hide what they were doing. The nurse injected her last night with an overdose, and she was thrown into a pit with a whole bunch of other bodies, and a machine buried it, and then they put a cross over there so that you can have a place to put your flowers. They learned how to kill with intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, and mental problems. And after that was really polished down, eventually they're going so fast they couldn't even just do the injections of the poison or the overdoses. Or they did things with children like put them out on the balconies, chained down when it was freezing, and they'd die of hypothermia, or they starved them in the hospitals. No one made it out. If you went in, you died. And all the records were... They didn't even come... You know, the reason that people are shocked by this is it wasn't until the unification of Germany that the records even began to flee fully on Earth because people were so trying to hide this that, that was deep, deep in East Germany and so forth. And I saw estimates even from 10 years ago. Oh, 80,000 people now is something more like half a million, four hundred thousand. 400,000... Just one hospital we went to visit, uh, uh, or, or planned to visit, I didn't actually get there, but I close to Frankfurt, I think was something like 50,000 people died. So, and towards the end, as I was going to say, it got going so fast, they invented gas chambers. The mental hospitals had gas chambers. And burning the bodies, they did that too, but then that created problems because too many of them were close to cities. So then when the concentration camps and the Jewish problem, as they called it, and I'm Jewish by the maternal line, so I'm talking about my relatives uh, who died in ovens, they put them far away from town so that the stench of the burning bodies wouldn't let people know what was going on. But my point here, and I'm going to take my poor class who wants to learn about ACT and process-based therapy, and, and I'm going to make them watch a few YouTube videos that will have them weeping or shocked is we need to really wake up to what the alternative is when we're categorizing people on bell curves as if that determines the winners and losers and telling people you're schizophrenic you'll have that problem for life you need to dump these massive amount of chemicals on you that's a bullshit it's not scientific it's not true it You know, we know that's not right. Of course, it can be helpful, so-called antipsychotics, but limited dose and a lot of psychosocial and help people through what's actually happening inside a schizophrenic episode. And on and on it goes. Instead of doing that, it's bell curves, categorization, shove them in a cubbyhole. And no, we don't inject people now... uh, you know, with lethal overdoses. But do we do things now that foreshorten their vision by themselves and their families for their futures? And are we psychologists part of it? Are we behavioral health professionals part of it? I'd say yes. We may, may not be the same as the nurses with our list of the five people who died that night. But we're in a system that is harmful to people one out of three teenagers in the U.K. last year were on antidepressants. One out of four women in the United States of America this year are on antidepressants. What happens with high-dose long use of antidepressants? Permanent problems in handling serotonin. Is there any evidence that this serotonin is why they got depressed in the first place? No. There's a gigantic meta-analysis just published two weeks ago got international publicity. It's happened multiple times. People have known this. But, you know, big pharma, they're not the killing machines, but they're the, you know, you'll pay until you die machines for just money. And I'm not... Against medications, don't listen to that. Hear me saying that. I mean, I've used ACT to help people get more flexible about using medications. I've randomized trials doing that. I'm just saying, man, we really got to wake up and start looking at what empowers people and stop sorting and categorizing and thinking that that's treatment.
1: Agreed. You're getting full Steve rants here, dude. I'm sorry, Tom. No, I'm, I'm. I don't consider it a rant. I'm locked in, and it's powerful to hear how much the sort of whole floor and foundation of the way we view people uh, is built on straw. It's wrong.
0: The uh, ergodic theorem was done to try to predict how gas molecules would behave from a volume of gas because they couldn't measure gas molecules, and it's now used for everything, your water systems, etc. i to any physics major, and they know it. But it was looking at the relationship of time and space, and you could see the collective at a given point of time, does it, at a given spatial location, does volume of gas, does it predict what will happen longitudinally over time with the elements that are within it? And the answer is yes, as long as every single element is identical and follows the same dynamic model. Okay, there's some noble gases that do that. That's and all the temporal trajectories are flat. So there could be variation, but no trends. All right, now how many human problems are we dealing with where the trajectories are flat? Let's see, processes of change. Hmm. Would the trajectory be flat? <laughs> that would be no. It's change, right? And, and the same dynamic model applies to everybody, to all elements. They're all identical. They respond to the same things in the same way in the same sequence. Uh, how many human things are like that? Mm, none. <laughs> so we are not noble gases, so the bell curve doesn't predict the trajectory of the people in it, because you don't know the variables developmentally that led to their place on the bell curve. Yes, it's a snapshot. A snapshot, and then you and then you look at something like, oh, the black people are more down here. Oh, it must be you know it's all. It doesn't matter if they're reared together or reared apart. Behavioral genetics, either. it must be. Gee, it's nature nurture. Who, who first said nature and nurture? That's Galton. Mm. The G in intelligence, who first described that? That's Galton, mm. the creator of eugenics, who developed these tools for that and says in writing, that's why he's mm-hmm. developing those statistics. Well, you know, it takes something like, like race. You know, don't be telling me reared together, reared apart, you're black everywhere you go. It doesn't matter we that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the cultural institutionalized racism. The likelihood of you getting pulled over and shot. The likelihood of you know you have having to pay fifty percent more to buy that house or even be able to buy it in the first place. Or get that job or get that promotion or you know, so don't thinking it's a ball falling down a Galton bean board. You have to model how did it happen. And even if it wasn't that, everywhere you go, the environment's the same. How about something like trauma? Mm. You know, I have an African-American daughter and tell the story of us being thrown out of a public pool when she was two and a half, three years old because she was too brown. And, the, you know, the club secretary comes over and says, your baby's too brown. I think you're, you're talking about sunscreen or something. And now then I realize we're being thrown out. Now, she doesn't remember it, but I know she remembers some of the other things that happened to her, and I couldn't protect her from it. She's African-American to everybody, and those early experiences, some of which could be traumatic, were traumatic probably. I don't know, if speaking for her as a person, but do you see that? I mean, the, how sexual abuse, you name it, right? It's no longer 50-50. It's not the binomial distribution. It's not a ball falling down a bean board that gives you a, a bell curve. It's if it hit here on this peg, the probability changes for the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. When I'm giving a lecture, I show this with have you ever seen a Galton beam board where the balls fall down and, for, and form a bell curve at the bottom after the all falls through? No, but I can conceptualize yeah, it. Yeah, each each peg is right in the middle, so it's fifty fifty each time, and that's the binomial distribution. And you know, it was uh, Persian mathematicians were writing about it. You know, thousands of years before Christ. I mean, it's just ridiculously how old this is. Not hundreds of years. How how long how long it's been that we've known this. Yeah, but I, when I'm showing it, I I show a video of what happens if instead of balls that just fit through the gap, you put small balls down, and what happens, mm. and and I, I do it, it's a film where where the white balls are just over by one gap of hundreds, and the black on the other one, and it goes and separates out right? because if it hits the peg on the side, each probability. From every peg thereafter is different because it has it bounces and has momentum and it's small enough that it's no longer 50-50. It may be 1090 for each peg. So you get these. <laughs> well, if you don't model that, if you don't follow every ball down the non-random forest, um, you don't know how people ended up like this. And therefore you don't know how people could change from this. Mm-hmm. You didn't even model those trajectories. You just looked at the end results, put on a bell curve, said the ones on this end are going to have these kind of lives, the ones on that end are going to have those kind of lives. Not true. It could be completely different. You know, those folks down there with massive developmental disabilities could have, unbeknownst to you, have PKU. And you gave them phenylalanine in the diet, and it can't handle phenylalanine. They can't digest it, so they'd kick off a poison that literally kills their nervous system to the point that they have massive developmental disabilities. We test for it now, and people get phenylalanine-free diets, and they're
1: not affected by the genetic disorder. But you never understand that if you don't get inside of that person's context and follow the...
0: Yeah, there's one that's a big moderator, right? If we lived on a planet with no phenylalanine, we never would have discovered it. Why would not we? Because we'd never even known it's there. And our traditional methods did discover that. But how about the methods that come not just from that moderator that predicts everything, but happen more like, and then you didn't get the job because your skin was too black. Who's measuring and modeling that? And you got these freaking racist diatribes like uh, Murray and Hernstein, Dick Hernstein, behavior analyst, the bell curve, still being sold today and quite popular, especially where, especially among kind of more authoritarian folks that are making the argument that actually from the book that. Maybe we shouldn't be spending so much education money on black people.
3: You know, what? Those
0: bell curves. uh, Process-based therapy takes you into a place in which, because we're not frozen clones, we're not, you know, uh, noble gases. Our history matters for individuals where we have to reorient towards the initially harder but long term I think easier task of doing what clinicians do anyway, which is model the trajectories of individuals over time, detect what they're doing that is leading to success or failure with regard to their own goals and and help bump them in the right direction. That should be what our intervention science is all about and those should be the measurement tools are given the analytic tools are given instead of uh, cubby holes and 400 page protocols
1: well couldn't think of any better way to end than that thank you so much for this time well thank you for letting me do a rant
0: i'm actually people are listening they can't see it but i hold here a cup and i'm showing it to tom it says rant and then in parentheses, never, and then over. (laughs) This was given to me by my lab, because you can imagine listening to this, what it's like to be in my lab, which is winding down. I'm retiring. It'll be done by the end of this year. But um, they were very kind. It was actually an undergraduate labby who gave me the rant, never over a cup. I'm drinking my coffee from... um, but I do hope there's something in, the, in there that uh, is useful to people. And I, if I could just finish with something practical. Now that we're on it, the progress is really f- clicking. I'm really n- noticing how we're, you know, the measures are moving, the anal analyses are moving, et cetera. So I would hope if you're a really functionally oriented clinician, that you open your eyes up to the process-based therapy thing. It's not a new form of therapy. It's a process-based approach, let's call it that, because it's a new way of thinking about what we should demand of our evidence-based therapies. And ACT does a pretty damn good job. It's been sort of running a pilot test unknowingly for, instead of PBT, I'll say PBA, process-based approach. And so um, help us out. And uh, just by being interested in reading and using the tools and so forth, when my charitable organization releases our app, uh, use it. I guarantee at least some of it will be free. There will be freemiums in there because you've got to pay the bills. But so that you can uh, begin to explore what it would be like to really uh, think of diagnosis and so forth, the way we started out, that it's functional analysis and case conceptualization that fits the individual. And their needs and wants, and in terms of the processes that we know about uh, that have been scientifically proven. That's a, a journey that I
3: think
1: can take us in a really exciting place in the world. Well, I can't wait for that. And those that uh, like your rants as much as me, check out your new podcast that you release on your new le- newsletter, right? Yeah, you know, and
0: I do a little podcast now with all of my newsletters, so if uh, called Days Are Getting Better. It was an old bluegrass band, but, uh, Kelly Brownell and I uh, had went back when I was an intern, and I loved naming it that. And uh, just go to www.stevenchayes.com if you want it, and click on Yes, please send it to me. It's a one-click opt-out. If you don't like it, you can get rid of it instantly. And I don't spam people. But uh, yeah, I would love to have you be part of uh, my journey, and for me to maybe be some help. And Empower in some way, your journey. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you, Tom.
1: It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my greed. i never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul